And apparently, apparently you, you yeah. get time to give a speech, but if you okay. go on too long, a, a young child, a, a young, I don't know how old, walks across the stage saying, I'm bored. <laughs> Welcome once again to the Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone as confused by the latest health study as I am by the weather. Now, I know it is cliche to talk about the weather, but we were talking about the weather just before we started. Boston traditionally has two seasons, winter and construction season, but now it feels like we have reached the point at which there is no predictability to the weather whatsoever. And I just walked over here in pouring rain. We've had rain all summer. Are you all as annoyed by the weather as I am? It's rainy today for sure. I feel like I have been enjoying in recent years our like lengthy, warm falls which I grew up here, which were not a part of my childhood. Like I remember, did you grow up here? Like, I did. Do you remember by Halloween, we would be wearing like long underwear and you'd have a costume somewhere under like your huge down jacket. And I tell my kids yeah, about this all the time and right? they think I'm, well, I've lost it. Our kids are like now trick or treating and yeah, yeah. tank tops and yeah, yeah. actual costumes. It's wrong. It's crazy. Actually, but yeah, I, I, I know. Like I, yeah. I, I, I like a little bit of the warmth. But Amruta with us is the actual climate change person yeah. who really tells us how horrible it is. I was joking with a childhood friend of mine a few days ago because I grew up in North Carolina and I had probably 11 hurricanes pass over in the 12 years <laughs> that I lived there. Oh, wow. And so I was joking with a friend of mine from high school. If only we had known when we moved to Boston, the hurricane would start following us up the East Coast. It's so true. It's so true. Fortunately, we haven't been, we haven't had a major hurricane in the Boston area in right. quite a while. But the threat are, of one last week, there, though, there we are have threats of this them minor more and one, more. but it was yeah. very minor here. Yeah. Hurricane. I mean, just this past weekend, they yeah. were really, it was, you know, all in the news, but then it, it was just kind of like a lot of wind, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of rain. Yeah. Our, our friends in Maine, though, lost power oh. from yeah. the, mm. from the wind. So it was, it wasn't, wasn't big, but it wasn't nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. And I am joined once again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health. Welcome, Jess. Thank you, Matt. And we have returning guest host, Dr. Amrutha Nori Sarma from the Department of Environmental Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Amrutha. Thanks so much. As a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. Nick, I keep saying W. Do I need to say the W? Yeah, every time Nick uh, reminds me. Okay. So then head on you have to, to the start with the HTTP HTT colon, colon backslash backslash. So it's just pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. And another reminder go on over to your favorite podcast app and give us a rainy. We haven't gotten a uh, review in a while, which is, hmm. you know, always makes me sad. So if anyone wants to make me happy, go on and, and give us a, a review. So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we are talking about a study on the effect of wildfires. Uh, we'll be more specific as we, we get to it. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about housing as harm reduction, which I thought was an interesting concept. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will talk about some things that make us laugh out loud or we just found fascinating. So segment one. So the article that we're going to talk about, it was 
looked at the impact of wildfires on healthcare use within a specific subset of the population. It was published in the journal Epidemiology. Full disclosure, I am on the editorial board for Epidemiology. And it was entitled Wildfire Exposure and Healthcare Use Among People Who Use Durable Medical Equipment in Southern California by first author Heather McBrien of the Environmental Health Sciences Department at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. Now, this one didn't actually have a lot of headlines. So, Jess, can you talk, walk us through this study? I can. This was an interesting one. So just to back up a little bit, this study is part of a growing literature on this topic, on the health effects of exposure to wildfire smoke. And as we know, wildfires are becoming increasingly prevalent in the United States and elsewhere as a consequence of climate change. The growing literature about the health effects of wildfire smoke are focused increasingly on more nuanced ways to assess exposure to wildfire, health relevance of the exposure to wildfire, and also narrowing in on particularly vulnerable populations. So the authors of this study focused on a particularly medically vulnerable group, adults who use electricity-dependent durable medical equipment, which is a bit of a mouthful. And so these are people who are on things. I, I looked up to see what durable medical equipment exactly was. Um, so <laughs> things like, yeah, I mean, things like ventilators, oxygen machines, wheelchairs, infusion pumps, people who've rented hospital beds, for example. And the majority of these medical, the uses of these medical equipment are associated with morbidity and fairly severe chronic disease, specifically as related to respiratory disease and mobility disease. And I would say maybe also cardiovascular disease. The authors here hypothesized that during a wildfire event, this population would be at higher risk of poor health outcomes for a couple of reasons. First of all, because of their inability to use or evacuate with their medical equipment because it was electricity dependent, maybe their inability to evacuate at all because the equipment couldn't be moved, gaps in medical care, or maybe because they were additionally vulnerable to health consequences of exposure to wildfire smoke. So these authors considered exposure to wildfire in two core ways. First was direct exposure. Actually, they were estimating exposure to the smoke from the fire using actual PM 2.5 data. They were also looking at residents within or near a zone that was evacuated during the wildfire as a proxy exposure to smoke, as well as a kind of a measure of stress caused by evacuation orders or living in proximity to a fairly substantial wildfire. And they called these dual exposures, the proximity to the evacuation zone and also the direct exposure to wildfire smoke. It was a mixture, quote unquote, mixture of direct and indirect exposure, although we could certainly discuss whether they measured all relevant outcomes. Mm -hmm. But they, they were looking at it as a mixture of the wildfire exposure effects. Participants for this study were drawn from the Kaiser Permanente Southern California electronic medical record, and they were all folks who had rented durable medical equipment in the last year and who were 45 years and older as of the start of their study, which was October 2019. So Kaiser Permanente is the largest network in California, and using these two criteria, so people who had rented medical equipment and were 45 years and older, 236,732 in individuals met these criteria and were enrolled into their study. 
the medical records included each patient's zip code, the zip code tabulation area, the ZCTA, or just the zip code of residence. The information that they derived from the electronic medical record also included daily counts of healthcare visits, not necessarily related only to their the medical equipment, but more generally in the seven counties of Southern California where this study took place from January 1st, 2016 to March 15th, 2020. And in this region in Southern California, where the study was located, there were 528 zip codes, including most of Los Angeles, Riverside, San Diego, Ventura, Kern, San Bernardino, and Orange counties in the state of California. There were 23 wildfires that burned from their study period during 2016 to 2020 that burned more than three kilometers. And the authors here focused on two particular fires. The Woolsey Fire, these were two big fires during their study period. The Woolsey Fire, which burned in November 2018, and the Getty Fire, which burned in October, November 2019, as particularly large fires that dramatically affected their study region. They measured exposure to wildfire smoke by estimating daily wildfire and non-wildfire PM2.5 concentrations at the zip code level using an aggregated approach across multiple data sources and modeling. And a complaint I had was that they only really described their exposure outcomes in a supplement. They didn't really go into it. They just Mm -hmm. said, they just said "We, we used an aggregated approach described elsewhere. What they did, some of the zip codes, actually many of the zip codes, because they were looking at this daily count level for health outcomes, which I'll talk about in a minute, the health outcomes were low. So they aggregated at times, they aggregated zip codes to be able to preserve the daily time step, which in other literature on wildfire smoke exposure has proven to be an important time step. So instead of aggregating the time, they aggregated the geospatial proximities. They measured proximity to wildfire using GIS shapefiles from the CAL FIRE program, looking at the maximum burned area. And they considered a zip code area exposed if their boundary was within 20 kilometers of a fire perimeter on the day the fire was active. They also measured evacuation exposure metrics by generating maps of the evacuation zones. I think they did this themselves on the basis of information that was provided to the public and then digitizing the boundary of these areas. And a zip code was exposed to the evacuation zone if they were within 10 kilometers of any evacuation zone boundary on the day the fire was active. They looked at a number of health outcomes. So those were kind of the exposure metrics, the PM 2.5, and the different sorts of ways that they measured evacuation zone. The outcomes that they looked at drawn from the electronic medical record were all-cause outpatient visits, all-cause emergency department visits, all-cause inpatient admissions, and also emergency department and inpatient admissions specifically for circulatory or respiratory disease among the study participants, who again were adults 45 and up, within this Kaiser Permanente health network who rented, and they all rented medical equipment from January 2016 to March 2020. They used a negative binomial regression approach on their analytics, and they had some interesting commentary about why here, unlike in the majority of the sort of geospatial research, they didn't use methods accounting for spatial or autocorrelation, which they determined to not be an issue in this particular data set because the air quality changed a lot day to day. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't geospatially autocorrelated as they might have expected. So they had this kind of set of fairly generic health outcomes and then this set of exposures to wildfire smoke. Getting to their findings, so they did find that a daily 10 microgram 
per meter cubed increase in wildfire PM 2.5 exposure was associated with a decrease in the rate of outpatient visits one day after the wildfire event, but marginally increased on four of the five subsequent days. Wildfire levels were not associated with all-cause emergency departments or inpatient visits or inpatient visits for the cardiovascular, circulatory, or respiratory disease endpoints. I would note that the majority of the associations that they did find in this study, interestingly, hovered around the null, Mm -hmm. a little bit above, a little bit below. Some of them were statistically significant. The majority were not. They did note that in post hoc secondary analyses, they observed elevated risk of inpatient visits for cardiorespiratory endpoints one week following a 10 microgram per meter cubed increase in weekly weekly, not daily, wildfire PM concentration. But this, again, was a post hoc analysis. It wasn't part of their primary suite of analytics. And they grouped their exposure data on a weekly basis instead of a daily time step because they found some of the daily time steps were a little bit unstable in their estimates. There was some inclination that all-cause and cardiorespiratory inpatient visits, the risk of these visits was increased within the evacuation zone for one of the fires, in particular the Woolsey fire, which had a much larger perimeter, but not for the Getty fire, which was a more contained fire. There were actually no real associations beyond the null in any of their analyses for the Getty fire. The results were not sensitive to modeling adjustments. They did all kinds of sensitivity analyses and different sorts of variations on their model, including varying the approach for the spline used or the size of the buffer regions. And I actually, one of the things I really liked about this paper is that they talked through all the things that they were doing. They talked in a lot of detail, with the exception of that one exposure mm-hmm. assessment component of the modeling. On the regression side, they did a great job in doing that. At the end, they concluded that there was a brief decrease in all-cause mortality immediately following a wildfire event, a day with high wildfire smoke, but there was some evidence of increase in inpatient visits up to two weeks later, although these associations were marginal and potentially not discernible from the null and not statistically significant. There were no associations between exposure to wildfire PM 2.5 and emergency department or inpatient visits, which was counter to their original hypothesis at the end of the day. This is a great summary. Uh, Before we get into the specifics, can you just explain to us what PM 2.5 is and why do we care about that specifically? That's a great question. So PM 2.5, and I can look to Amruta also to jump in as this is an area she has expertise in, is a very, very small form Mm -hmm. of particulate matter, air pollution. Particulate matter. PM stands for particulate matter. And 2.5 reflects the very, very tiny size that are much more likely to get deeper into your lungs and cause greater health concerns. The larger particulate matter, whether you can see or that you can kind of brush, that's more like dust, is less likely to go and embed deeper in your airways and cause more significant health problems. Perfect. And is is 2.5 a an actual value or is it a, a minimum or a maximum? In other words, it's an actual value. So particulate matter has a range of sizes and we classify particulate matter with a diameter smaller than 10 micrometers is called PM10. So it's the maximum threshold for declaring this is the particulate matter of this particular size. So, so, so 2.5, 2.5 is 2.5 anything or less. lower. Got right. it. Okay. Okay. And we care about that because it's associated with uh, harm to the respiratory Yes. It, it descends deeper into your respiratory tract. It goes deeper into your lungs and it can cause more severe 
cardiorespiratory outcomes. Okay. And inflammation too. Right. And sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So Amrutha, can you give us your take on the study? And in particular, one question I was hoping you could address is, did these results surprise you? Yeah. So that's a really great question. I thought this was a really excellent study. I like that they focused in on a particularly medically vulnerable population. And I think that a couple of the different things that just pointed out were really important for this type of work. So, you know, focusing on patients who might have chronic illnesses that will be exacerbated during periods of wildfire smoke, focusing on patients who we can assume would need continuity of care. I think those are really important and really understudied components of people seeking medical care. I think that wildfires in particular are of greater interest, especially as we start to see Mm -hmm. larger wildfires, more frequent wildfires, wildfires that are occurring in places that they maybe haven't occurred before. We can think back over the summer when there are wildfires in in the eastern side of Canada had impacts up and down the east coast. Terrible impacts. Terrible impacts. And one of the things that I think is important to establish is who are the populations who might potentially be vulnerable that we need to be concerned about as we start to see more and more widespread exposure to PM 2.5 from wildfire smoke? And one of the things that I think is contextual that is maybe hard to pick up on from this type of analysis, but is also really important, is that when we see wildfire smoke, the levels of PM 2.5 that are associated with wildfire specific exposures are very, very high. Mm. So they mention in the paper that non-wildfire specific PM 2.5 concentrations hovered around the criteria within the U.S. of a little bit less than 12 micrograms per cubic meter. But when we see wildfire specific PM 2.5, we can see up to 150, 200 micrograms per cubic meter. It's a very elevated, acute exposure to PM 2.5. It may clear pretty quickly Mm -hmm. as well. So it's not going to be the sustained exposure that we see from regular baseline PM 2.5 levels. But this type of acute threat is similar to some of the very extreme episodes of PM 2.5 that we've seen globally, you Mm -hmm. know, in India or in China, for example. So this is a huge exposure on a very acute timescale that's happening potentially among new people who may not have experienced this exposure before and who might, as in the case of this paper, be particularly medically vulnerable. So in terms of your second question, was I surprised? Not necessarily. I think that, you know, the authors mention a couple of different issues that they encountered that I think are areas for future work. And one of them is the low counts for some of these outcomes in different areas and the necessity to aggregate, which I agree with them. It's important to preserve the temporal component of the model because daily PM 2.5 levels have such variation, especially during these acute events. But, you know, I think what they're seeing is that, you know, people who need care, there might be lower counts in some of these different communities. And so I think that might have contributed to some of the things we see in terms of the non-statistically significant effect estimates that they provide. I think that Looking in Southern California was really important because that is a place that experiences a lot of these different exposures, but it might also be indicative of a medical community that is used to these wildfire exposures and so maybe has some built-in adaptation. So this is one of the things that we kind of think about on the climate side. Who are the populations that we're looking at? Maybe do they already have some ability to cope with these increasing impact events because they've experienced them before? So maybe there's another component there as well. I was a little bit surprised that they didn't find, you know, elevated risks of emergency department Mm -hmm. visits, which I would expect to see. But maybe that's just an indicator that 
there is some sort of mechanism in place to provide service or access to care for people who need that continuity of care where they expect that these types of wildfire events might be happening. So potential for some amount of resilience in the face of increasing numbers of these kinds of events. Exactly. Jess, what about you? Were you were you surprised by these findings and what was your take on the study? I like to study. I was I was I was a little bit surprised by, you know, this was one where it was interesting. I, you know, I noted at the front that it was, it was under review for a year. Oh, and interesting. Yeah. I, and so, you I know, you, I rarely like focus on that, but mm-hmm. so it led me to think that there was a good amount of back and forth with your reviewers <laughs> on this paper and kind of, I, could, it could, could be, it could have been the, just delays. Just it could have, it could have been various, it could have been, yes, yes, sure. no, no, it's true. And so I was thinking about, you know, it, I was thinking about how when, when that has happened to me, when there's some long review period, it often ends that there's lots of analyses that get tacked on that mm-hmm. maybe weren't yeah. my initial intention yeah, yeah. because they went about do this, try this, try this, try this, try this. And it was interesting to me that even after if that, even if that was going on, maybe it wasn't, even after all of that, most of the results still kind of hovered around the null in the context that this was a very large study population. So even things that were, you know, 0.04 or 0.96 could actually reflect on an absolute level, a a significant amount of morbidity in these domains, but they weren't finding, I think the major associations that maybe they set out to find. And I had, I had wondered in part if that was due to the ages, which they mentioned in the paper, if their study population was too young, that if they had limited their study population to older people, maybe they would have seen, it would have narrowed their population, but that there must have been a strategic decision about the age of 45. Yeah. And um, I think I can yeah. speak to that a little bit, okay. which is that people who are seeking care through this type of managed organization, you might struggle to find a truly elderly population that would be contained in that. Because they would be presumably on Medicare. Medicare. On Medicare. So Mm. this had to be, I see. So this had to be a population that was younger than Medicare, but old enough to potentially be vulnerable. Vulnerable. And just, I mean, they were were using medical devices. So they presumably, uh, on average, were probably vulnerable. vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it it seems to me that it's a sort of in-between population. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. So I would assume based on the reading of this and my knowledge of what these types of claims might look like, I would assume that this is some combination of people who are members within this managed organization and then also people who have some sort of Medicare Advantage type participation. Mm -hmm. Right. They did make a note that this Kaiser Permanente Network, that it excluded typically excluded people who were very high income, who had other sorts of health provider systems, and then people who were very low income. But they felt like they were capturing the majority of people who were not very right. high income or very low income. Right. So, so yeah, so I think it's interesting to think about kind of the choices in the population. The other question I had, and I'm interested in your thoughts on, on this topic, was the choice of these very generic health outcomes, which seem increasingly common in some of the climate literature, where it's like all cause mortality, all mm-hmm. cause inpatient admissions. And maybe they toss in a few that have a little bit more of a biological rationale. Here they had the cardiorespiratory, you know, respiratory and cardiovascular disease. But these endpoints are very, very generic. And this I this happens across a lot of the climate literature. And I was interested in what the two of you thought about the use of those more generic endpoints. As someone with no substantive area expertise, I can tell you all of my, most of my comments on this were about measurement error and how well have we measured the things that we say we're measuring because to the extent that there is just random 
measurement error. Presumably a lot of this is biased towards no effect when there may in fact be one. I, I don't have a good sense for how well things like PM 2.5 are being measured or proximity to the, to the wildfires are, are being measured. But it, it struck me as that's one possibility. I'm going to assume that the number of visits is probably reasonably well measured. So that's probably okay. So there's just, you know, did we measure it well or not? Then there's the conceptual measurement problem, which is, are we measuring the right thing? So as you point out, Jasmine, presumably part of the reason why they're using these more broad types of outcomes is because you don't have enough events if you focus on a, mm -hmm. a, a more narrow, but then conceptually, do we really think that exposure to wildfire would have, you know, huge impacts on emergency room visits for things unrelated, you know, things that you might not be expected to be related to the wildfire. So that might be biasing towards no effect. So uh, the three possible explanations I could come up with is one, this is real. There is, there is some harmful effect, but it's not massive. Two is there is a very large effect, but it's being masked by a measurement issue or three, the issue you brought up on Ruth that there may be a mitigating pathway here so that the effects are large if you don't have these abilities to cope. But if you do have the ability to cope uh, or reduce your exposure, then you may be bringing down the effect. And I don't know if any of those are right or if there are other possibilities, but those are the things that occurred to me. Yeah. In looking through and in thinking through my own experience with claims data, looking at all cause and cause specific outcomes and separating, parsing those two out can be really important. The reason why I like doing an initial effect estimate looking at all cause hospitalizations or all cause emergency department visits is because I feel like by separating things out, you may actually miss some of the, you know, non-traditional health impacts of these climate specific exposures. And this is a burgeoning literature. So I think one of the concerns that I have is that if you limit to specific outcomes, you know, there can be a separate question about the biological pathways. And that's something that I think we definitely need to work through as well. But you can miss out on really important health endpoints that might be associated that you wouldn't necessarily think of. And we've, we've seen that. We've seen that in, in papers that we've published. We've seen that in other papers as well. So I think it is important to do the all-cause and then cause-specific outcomes. I agree. I think in terms of the exposure measurement and potential for issues, exposure misclassification is something that we do get concerned about. And especially when you're looking at environmental analyses that are assigning exposure based on a single measure or a couple of different measures and using that as a proxy for individual level exposures. And this is also an area that I think is up and coming both for just general ambient pollution work and then also for wildfire specific pollution work how much more spatially and temporally refined can we make our exposure estimates in order to try and classify the variation that occurs in these exposures for wildfire-specific PM 2.5. And then the other thing that I think is important is, depending on the particular wildfire, there can be different chemical constituents that mm -hmm. compose the wildfire. So looking at PM 2.5 is important, but it's only one of the wildfire specific pollutants that is going to be increasing in the atmosphere as a result of the ongoing wildfire. VOCs, volatile organic compounds is another one that comes to mind. So there's complex chemistry that's happening as a result of these wildfires and, you know, future research may look at other types of wildfire specific pollution and the impacts on health as well. Yep. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to talk about was the, the hypothesis here, because this is a, a pretty complicated story, and I, I don't I 
think it was in the appendix that I found. I, I found as I was reading this, I struggled to understand what they hypothesized was the the mechanism here, whether it was, you know, direct exposure to PM two point five leading to respiratory you know, complications that lead you to the hospital. And they have a, a causal diagram that maps out their hypotheses. And it's it's really complex. So they they talk about residents in a, a near a fire being related to exposure to PM 2.5 and visible smoke, but also loss of electricity, evacuation, and all of most of these, if not all of them, then leading to stress, which then leads you to a health visit. And they say specifically, they hypothesize that, that stress is the the biggest factor is that I, that was surprising to me. I would have assumed the, the biggest thing you'd be mm-hmm. causing people to end up in healthcare visits would be the actual exposure to the smoke as opposed to stress, which leads to, you know, other factors, which leads you to the, the hospital. Was that, was that surprising to you all? I, I liked their, I mean, I thought one of the, one of the novel elements of this paper was that they included the evacuation zone as a proxy for stress. And I think I liked their discussion of kind of the stress mediation of of the pathways that they were proposing. I think what wasn't entirely clear to me was the biology of the interaction between the smoke, the smoke exposure, the PM 2.5 exposure and the stress in conjunction with their very general health outcomes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for me in reading this, I was saying, I understand that there it's super stressful to be in these in these zones and additionally so for people who have medical equipment and advanced medical needs and then there's also the wildfire smoke and how do those interact and what would be the uh, what are the the real diseases that would come or the acute is it you know kind of the acute manifestations of those two exposures specifically in a way that wasn't all cause ED visits or, you know, something of that sort. And so that to me was kind of this, just like a little bit of a gap in the discussion of the biology that they were Mm -hmm. proposing. And there also was no metric of stress, Mm -hmm. right. Other than this kind of proxy for evacuation zone, which is, which is interesting for sure. And so I was a little mixed, but I, I I did like the focus on the stress component because it's something novel in this literature. I agree. And I think maybe taking a step back and going back to the exposure discussion that we were just having, one of the things that I think is important to keep in mind is that your ambient exposure to PM 2.5 is not necessarily your overall exposure to PM 2.5. So Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that they're characterizing using this evacuation zone measure is people who would actually have to leave their homes. Because if you're vulnerable, if you're medically vulnerable because you have DME, durable medical equipment, you're likely indoors and that can act very well to mitigate your exposure to external That's wildfire-specific really smoke. Yeah. So if how, you're— How does that work? How, how, because presumably the air is Because you're less mobile. You're less, you're less mobile. You're less mobile. You're less out in Maybe your environment. Maybe less likely to be working or right. out and about. And if you're—as long as you're not a person experiencing homelessness and you have a stable housing structure, the— air exchange between your indoor environment and your outdoor environment is actually very controllable and is likely to be Mm. a huge reduction in your, the level of PM 2.5 that you're exposed to. So I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think that stress is potentially a really good way to estimate the impact of the wildfire itself, because you might live close to the wildfire, but not necessarily be in an evacuation zone, but you're still really stressed out because the wildfire is close to you. And that might lead to 
an inpatient visit or an emergency department visit, even though it's not because you're breathing in the wildfire smoke because you're outside, right? So I actually think that that's relatively a good way to understand the pathway. So it's interesting. So you're you're suggesting that um, use of the durable medical equipment itself could be an indicator for reduced exposure to the wildfire mm-hmm. smoke, which maybe would then in this particular population it, it kind of attenuate the relationship. Mm-hmm. If their exposure is lower, then you might have in a different population, hypothetically, that is outside. Um, that would be outside. Yeah. That would have greater exposure to outdoor air pollution, but that the stress might be higher. Right. In this and this would, population. I think, also explain the kind of lagged effects that they see, because what they see is a slightly protective effect the same day and the following day. Mm-hmm. And then they see elevated effects later. So to me, that indicates an accumulation of psychosocial factors that are leading to increased need for care. Yep. And the same day, because people are remaining indoors, they're not exposing themselves highly to the actual wildfire smoke. Maybe this is one of the things that kind of explains that lagged response that they see. To me, that makes a lot of sense. I, I have to admit, when I read the title of the study, my assumption was that the hypothesis was something to do with the medical equipment right. itself, that it would be lack of power that, that led to the inability to use the medical equipment that leads to, and that's in here. I mean, they do talk about loss of electricity leading to loss of access to medical equipment, but they they don't hypothesize that that is the main factor, which I thought I th- right. w- was just surprising to me. So, Which actually is, I mean, the this is a very interesting vulnerable population in the context of, of climate events yeah. mm-hmm. anyway. I mean, in terms of, we, I have these experiences in my my extended family in terms of uh, hurricanes and floods mm-hmm. and needing to secure kind of safe evacuation mm-hmm. setups for people who have a ventilator, for example. And there are, there's a limited number of shelters that can accommodate people mm-hmm. who have durable medical equipment. I know in Southern Florida, for example. And, and so it can be very challenging if you have an evacuation order to be able to help your loved ones, your family members find safe places to evacuate. And so that was when I saw the title, that's what I thought the paper mm-hmm. was going to be about. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was yeah. going to be about kind of the how, how can you health consequences associated with the use of the medical equipment, yep. which I think is also a very interesting area of research in the context sure. of climate. Sure, yeah. yeah. All right, we we need to move on, but I, I thought that was a really interesting study, and I was fascinated to see that the effects were not larger and do wonder what future work is going to find. Okay, so in our second segment, we are going to look at, we're talking about an editorial in the journal AIDS. Now, this is a field that I do work in, so I, I found this one particularly interesting. The title of it was Housing is Harm Reduction. It's by uh, Friedman, Kay, Macklin, and Ha. And they effectively are talking about the HIV care cascade, which is something that I spent a lot of time studying, but probably it's not something most people are familiar with of care cascades. The basic idea is that if you think about all the things that you need to do in order to get from infection to long-term on treatment virally suppressed with something like HIV, there are a number of steps you have to go through. So you got to get an HIV test, you got to link to a care system, you have to be started on treatment, and then you have to stay on treatment all along. And we talk about these as care cascades because at each of these different stages, people drop out of the cascade. And so it's sort of cascading down from a, an initial population where, you know, we can identify everybody who's infected to how many do we actually get at the end of the process who are virally suppressed in care long-term. And we're often looking for things that predict who is going to do well in the cascade and who is going to do poorly. And in particular, we look at people who are going to do poorly so that we can try and 
design interventions to help them. This commentary was talking about a study that had been done in the in the Vancouver cohort, the access cohort, in which they identified unstable housing or lack of housing as a strong predictor of doing poorly in the Carrot Cascade. And I suspect that is a surprise to no one. But, you know, these are the kinds of things where we need to document these things and be able to identify the magnitude of the effect to be able to mobilize resources to be able to to do something about it. And they then go on to talk about thinking about housing in the context of harm reduction, rather than just thinking about housing as a good in and of itself, but thinking about housing as a benefit in terms of in this case, of the benefits that it would have on the HIV care cascade. But I think you could think about this in the context of uh, presumably uh, housing has benefits in terms of, you know, if you've got diabetes on your ability to access and uh, maintain diabetes control, cholesterol, high cholesterol, all of the things that we might we might think about. I, I would imagine, you can tell me if I'm wrong, nobody's going to disagree with the idea of housing as harm reduction. So I'd want to get your your general thoughts on the topic, but I also specifically want to want to ask the question: If clearly we would all agree that this is is housing is is a good thing and it's going to have benefits, but I think we could think of lots of things that presumably are good, you know, a harm reduction that we could think of as harm reduction. So, you know, giving people access to clean air, clean water, to to healthy food, to an income. Do we then, you know, do, does it start to lose the benefit if we start to classify everything as harm reduction? Because then we sort of say, well, then which one are we going to actually choose as being the most important? So I'm looking for both your general thoughts, but but specifically your comments on that. And Amrutha, I'll start with you since you, uh, you are our guest. Yeah, so I thought this was really interesting. So coming from a place where I don't actually have a lot of experience, I really mm-hmm. appreciated your insight into the Care Cascade. I guess maybe one of the questions that I have is, when you say people who do poorly in the care cascade, I would want to dive into that a little bit more because I wonder sometimes if we don't have to wait for all of the downstream consequences, like if there are ways to identify more immediately, what are the maybe intermediate indicators that someone's going to do poorly in this care cascade? And I, I just don't know the answer to that question, but I, that was one of the questions that I had. Yeah, I can speak to that a little. I didn't, I don't actually read the the specifics on the, on the Vancouver study, but in general, you know, we, we lose a, a, a lot of people are lost from the care process right. from, from the early stages. So it's either never getting uh, onto HIV treatment or they get onto HIV treatment, but over the first six months, they, they drop out of care. It isn't so much that the medications aren't as effective in this population. They tend to be, you know, tend to be perfectly fine as long as people are adhering. There's no particular reason why they wouldn't do well. It's just that, you know, getting people into care and then getting to remain on care for that past that sort of first initial three to six months is challenging. Yeah. And then I think the other thing, you know, going to your question about you know, harm reduction and the the principle of harm reduction and do we lose some of the effectiveness of that concept by characterizing so many different things as harm reduction? I don't know, but I think that at, at least now I would like to try calling a lot of these things harm reduction. I would like to try calling clean air and clean water as a form of harm reduction and saying we don't necessarily have to say that there are linear improvements to people's health endpoints as a result of, you know, having each of these different harm reduction strategies in play. We might be able to amplify the effect of 
moving, transitioning people from experiencing homelessness into temporary or stable housing structures, we might be able to amplify the health impacts of that by also providing them with access to clean drinking water and sanitation and hygiene, right? So I think I don't see it as, you know, this is the, it's greater than the sum of its parts, I guess, is what I would say. And for that reason, I think that, you know, using this term harm reduction across all of these different domains might actually be really useful from a public health vantage point. Yeah, I, I can definitely I can definitely see it. I, I my only concern would be around whether we lose our ability to to effectively mobilize resources if it starts getting to the point where we just say, oh, everything is time reduction and everyone should be able to access everything. I, I do believe those things, but I, I just worry about the the messaging side of it. Jess, what's your what's your take? I thought this was a very interesting piece. I agree with you, Matt, that it's not like shocking (laughs) other than in the terminology. I think what was interesting in their discussion about housing here, the authors talk about kind of the the gatekeeping to housing, that there are policies Mm -hmm. that affect who has access to housing among specifically focused on people who use drugs and the stigma and the policies that often prevent people from who are, you know, prevent people who use drugs from accessing publicly available housing. And so the authors are saying that needs to be broken away. If this is a form of harm reduction, we can't have these gatekeeping policies that prevent people who engage in certain behaviors from entering and engaging in this, you know, this treatment cascade because now they are boxed out. And so I thought that was really interesting because housing is in many ways a limited good. Right. I mean, there there is never as much housing as we need. And so the question is how to allocate that. And so I think kind of targeting particularly vulnerable people as excluded from access seems antithetical to treatment. And I'm curious, how much of that do you think comes from the fact that certainly here in the United States and many other places, we haven't historically thought of substance misuse, substance use and misuse as a public health problem. We thought about as a criminal problem or as a behavioral an individual mm-hmm. behavioral problem, yeah. Yeah. not so much as a kind of system, you know, systematic or systemic public health issue for sure. No, I think that's true. And I think also the authors were focusing on in the United States and in Canada, I suppose, and from their reference point, AIDS prevention, HIV prevention is focused very heavily now on PrEP, on kind Mm -hmm. of this upstream prophylaxis. Right. And the expense of that, the cost of that is a reduced focus on particularly vulnerable people who already have the disease Mm -hmm. or potentially the role of housing or kind of policy type interventions as a form of PrEP, mm-hmm. you know, kind of as a form of pre-exposure prophylaxis, that if you can take people who are engaging in risky behaviors and move them into safer situations, maybe that itself is a form of prophylaxis. And so the authors were making kind of these claims about manipulating housing policy, both to prevent HIV and also to kind of prevent worse outcomes among people who are HIV positive and kind of focused on that gatekeeping role to housing, which I thought was kind of intriguing. Yeah. Part of the reason, presumably, that we don't do more of this is we don't have great data to support the benefits because we have not tried this because mm-hmm. we haven't thought of mm-hmm. housing as a human right and mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. as a harm reduction strategy. Uh, other 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 comments or thoughts on this one? It's been very, I mean, it's been very poignant and, you know, just in our area in the last few years with the pandemic and huge problems with homelessness. And I think Boston and our mayor and city government have been really challenged to increase housing supply. Mm-hmm. 
right? Uh, you know, and and I think they've been working along those margins in terms of setting up modular housing. You know, the idea that housing increasingly is is perceived as a human right and as prophylaxis for all sorts yeah. of other downstream right. chronic disease, and it shouldn't matter whether or not you're using drugs or not in terms right. of accessing that housing. And I think Boston is moving in those directions, but it was really spurred by the pandemic and by the huge crisis and homelessness that we've had really proximal here to us at SPH. And yeah. seems to be getting worse. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And I think that housing is one of the things that I think of as a huge structural determinant of health. And I feel that what you were mentioning earlier about thinking of some of these some of these larger issues that we're experiencing, such as the issues of substance use disorder, reframing the thought process around an epidemic rather than the criminality or the individual yep. behavioral characteristics. I think that's really important. And we're starting to see that a little bit, I think, with the opioid epidemic is a good example of you know, transitioning our thought process. But I do think that this idea that housing is a human right has knock-on effects for a lot of different segments of society. And I think it's hugely important and it's something that I think we should be talking about more, especially as we start to address income inequality and we start to talk about all of these other structural issues and structural determinants of health that are really important. And it's not just the, the most vulnerable segments of society that are gonna benefit from those discussions. I think it's larger segments of the population. So it's really important. Yeah, you wonder if it would it would sell better if if that message were clear that it's going to have benefits for everyone. Unfortunately, I think it might, but I mean, I guess if it sells better and also happens to redirect resources to exactly. the places where they're most needed, maybe that's the way to do it. But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It's tragic that it is, yep. but yeah. All right. I I found that one really interesting, so I appreciate you all engaging on that one. Let's move on to our Third segment, which is our amazing amusing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go first this time. I'm curious if either of you came across this paper or heard about this one in the news. It was probably about three or four weeks back. It was entitled "Rubbing Shoulders: Class Segregation and Daily Activities" by Massenkoff and Wilmers. They, they, they got a lot of press, so I thought you, you, it's possible you would have heard of it. Unfortunately. Just like on our last episode, our printer is still not working, so I couldn't print out the study. And I did; it was a, it was quite a long study, and I I read most of it. But a lot of the methods were a little bit beyond me. But the basic idea here was to use location data to try and understand how people mix across income distributions. And they they had access to these de-identified data sets of mobile phone use that you could use, and they could distinguish. Well, they couldn't perfectly distinguished, but they could largely distinguish between when people were at home and when they were out by, by where sort of the majority of the time spent in, in the pinging of the, the cell phone tower was. And so they could exclude the places that people spent the majority of their time at home and focus on when people are going out. And then they had information about the the their income distributions. And they looked to see wh- where, where people are mixing. And unsurprisingly, people of low and high socioeconomic status mix very little. And the reason for that largely has to do with the fact that people live around people of a similar socioeconomic status. And then people tend to, when they go out to restaurants or to retail facilities, tend to go to places not too far from their home. And therefore, the people that you are interacting with when you go out tend to be people of of similar socioeconomic status. The place where you would expect that people of all socioeconomic statuses go would be a place like pharmacy chains, which is 100% true, except that those are also located 
in places near where people live. So even when you go to the pharmacy, you are still most likely to be mixing with people of your own socioeconomic status just because your pharmacy is probably located close to your home. The place where people do the most mixing is chain restaurants like Applebee's and <laughs> the Olive Garden. That Ooh, is the place. Those two specifically. Those two specifically. There were a few right. other examples, uh-huh. but those are the two that are most likely mm-hmm. to see people intermixing. So if you want more mixing of socioeconomic status, Applebee's and That's Olive so Garden funny. are the place to They have to, to like go. work that into their theme yeah. song, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. <laughs> they got a little socioeconomic diversity in yeah. your day. Come there you to go. the Olive Garden. I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I think there are things that you could quibble about in the in terms of the methods, but I think overall it largely stands up. And I, I thought it was a really interesting use of data and an interesting message. I think we learned a lot from it. So did they did they look also at 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 racial? Classifications like was it in terms of a segregation issue also in terms of people not not moving outside of the boundaries of their racial identity also or was it just socioeconomic status? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't remember reading anything about about uh, racial mixing in this one, so mm-hmm. I'm going to say for the moment that probably if, if it did, it was a smaller part of it. I don't see anything about it in the in the abstract which I have printed out in front of me, so I, I don't think that was their focus, but it, it may have been a small part of it. It's really interesting because it's one of the aspects that you know with I think about education for young children and the focus on understanding differences so often comes with having those personal exposures Mm -hmm. with people who are different than you. Mm -hmm. And if much of your life you focus, you know, your experiences are only with people that are similar to you, right? You lose those, you know, those kind of inferences. Yep. Amrutha, how about you? What do you got? So I pulled a press release that came out of New Mexico from a couple of days ago, and it's about updating a public health order focused on combating gun violence. Mm. So the governor of New Mexico issued an updated public health order outlining the measures that they were taking to combat gun violence in Albuquerque and a couple of other spots throughout New Mexico. And the reason why I thought this was really fascinating is because it's one of the few times that I think I've seen gun violence being mentioned as a public health issue as a matter of public policy. And so I thought that was really great. And I mean, we have a lot of excellent research coming out, even of BUSPH talking about, you know, different environmental exposures that impact gun violence. And I think there have been discussions around reframing gun violence as a public health issue. And so I think this is fantastic. There are a few other things that are included in this public health order that I think are really interesting. There's some ongoing discussion and debate around how they're going to actually enforce this. But the particular things that I thought were really interesting were suspending carrying firearms at parks and playgrounds, Mm. which I think is a really big one. And there's also some different information about some of the factors, you know, going back to the previous segment, some of the factors that need to be addressed in order to reduce the epidemic of gun violence, including helping people with substance use disorders, helping people with other types of mental health outcomes. And, you know, I think there is some ongoing discussion about the relationship between substance use disorder and violent episodes. But that putting that aside, I do think that the discussion about providing help to people who might be more prone to episodes of violence is a really important public health discussion as well. So Overall, I thought this was a public health policy implementation of a discussion that we're having in yeah. the public health academic realm. So I thought this was really great. Do you do you, so go, going back to what we talked about previously in the same way that we don't we haven't historically thought of substance use as a public health problem? 
We also haven't thought of gun violence as a public health problem. We've thought of it more in terms of a law enforcement issue. And I wonder how much of that is just the, the politics in the United States have, mm-hmm. have driven that to a place where it's hard to reframe, but it seems like we are, we're, we're, we're moving in that direction. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a good direction to be moving in. Yeah. Well, it's generally, I think one of the goals of public health in some way is to reframe some of these arguments that have a health endpoint with the idea that it's not just individual criminal actors or it's not just individual behavior, but there are systems and structures that, mm-hmm. that kind yep. of, you know, dictate in part what activities people engage in and kind of affecting those upstream systems as part of the you know, foundation of public health. So I agree. Yeah. yeah. Really interesting one. Yeah. Jess, what do you got? Oh, goodness. So you two had serious ones. Yes. I have something that's super that's why, not serious. That's why that's you brought why something great here. That's why <laughs> that's you came here, right? So this was one. This is someone whom I, I don't exactly know how my husband knows this person, but he said it came over his Facebook. It was like some contact over Facebook. So this is a smart toilet that can identify, I'm reading the headline, a smart toilet that can identify a person from their quote unquote anal print has won one of this year's <laughs> Ig Nobel Prizes. Okay. So this is, this goes down. Oh, this goes down in the annals, and I use that word loosely here of, uh-huh. of research uh-huh. that you, as the researcher, might think is super cool and super important, and then people read it, and then you're, and then you're up for an Ig Nobel Prize. Yep. So should we explain what the Ig Nobel uh, the, it's, prize so is? So the Ig Nobel is the the spoof Nobel Prize. I don't exactly know who awards them. It's it's done here in in okay. Cambridge over okay. at the the har- at the theater over at Harvard. For uh, Don, it, Used to Don has done many noble uh, studies on this, <laughs> okay, and he's okay. been to the ceremony, and it's it's quite a lot of fun. And they they wear like jester yep. hats mm. yep. know, in presenting these awards, and they're given I think like ten trillion fake Zimbabwean dollars. That seems <laughs> to and me apparently like apparently award. you you yeah. get time to give a speech, but if you okay. go on too long, a, a young child, a young I don't know how old, walks across the stage saying, "I'm bored." <laughs> That's great. That that happens even on my normal discussions in my research. But anyway, I thought this actually was pretty clever. So this is a urology professor at Stanford, and he developed a toilet and apparently a technology for assessing apparently... The anus is like a fingerprint and everyone has distinct patterns and creases. <laughs> okay, see I'm making Matt laugh a lot there. Wow. You know, and so and so he he identified a technology to discover everyone's distinct anal print with the assumption that, and also there's a technology that then can detect fecal occult blood and kind of bacteria through the urine stream. And so this was like a public health toilet, mm-hmm. right? And so apparently, you know, a lot of a lot of your microbiota obviously can be distilled in evaluations of your feces. And so he proposed this toilet, calling it the smart toilet. It's taking photos of your bottom. Yeah, I don't know how <laughs> um, I feel to about analyze that. analyze the distinct creases in your anus. <laughs> and, and so, you know, this is, and I think, you know, <laughs> the, the, the doctor who came up with this, he said, Dr. Park, who won the public health version of the Ig Nobel Prize, described it as a humbling experience as a tribute to the researchers, mentors, and visionaries who dared to seek answers in unconventional places. Unconventional. And, mm-hmm. and he's also said, we la- kind of, we laugh at this now, but give it 10 years you might not be laughing because you'll have one in your house. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to touch this one, unintended. Amrita, your reactions. 
I think this is hilarious. I think that maybe like the ability to laugh at ourselves sometimes and not take ourselves too seriously as academics and, you know, acknowledge that the things that we do are, you know, in this case, the Ig Nobel Prize maybe is an indicator that this is something that is ahead of its time. I don't maybe. know, maybe a maybe. little bit ahead of its time, but also the underlying public health implication, which I think you alluded to, is that there are a lot of things that we can tell about a person's health from unconventional indicators and, you know, biomarkers of different types of environmental exposures, different types of other exposures, I think, are something that's always in short supply. And, you know, there's different work going on to try and identify new and relevant biomarkers every day. So maybe this is just a different way of getting yeah. at that. I don't exactly. know. <laughs> and feces have been ignored in a lot of ways because of mm-hmm. the uck factor. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Chris, who's no longer on the show here, had a project years ago. I don't know wh- what the end result was where he developed uh, technology to identify people based on their ears. Mm-hmm. So it does not at all surprise me that you could do this in other ways with other body parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the toilet part of it I'm okay with right if so if it's if it's doing like analysis to identify pump, you know medical problems or things like that that sounds to me like a good thing but do we need a <laughs> the print yeah <laughs> and the like, privacy know. concerns <laughs> and but maybe I, I there's something know. about changes to the structure of these different body parts that could indicate other types of chronic health outcomes Possibly. that are. Right. Or maybe there's multiple people using the same toilet and they yeah, want and to, they be need to, to be able to distinguish, yeah. you know, between samples collected from uh-huh. this person versus this. I don't know. I thought it was, I thought this was genius. The guy was saying our, our bottoms <laughs> are this, our bottoms are the silent guardians of our health <laughs> at his ceremony for the Ig Nobel. Fantastic. Right. That is a good place for us to. <laughs> Wrap it up. Okay. <laughs> so that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can, Nick, is there still Twitter? I don't Does Twitter exist? Do we have to call it X now? I don't even know. Formerly X. Just, formerly just send us an Twitter. email or go to the pophealthyx.org website. We want to thank Nick Guler at the BU School of Public Health for sound and production and Mark Tkakchi for editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you'll download our next episode. <laughs>